Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by the co-host of the Shacks Loop podcast, Bradley Netherton. Bradley, welcome to the podcast, man. Rob, I didn't think we were going to get to record tonight. It seems like uh, somebody doesn't want us to know or doesn't want the people out there to know about Pascagoula. I know, man. They uh, we're getting a little too close. We've gone deep into this thing, and you took a trip to Pascagoula, so I think that they know we're on to them. Oh yeah, especially when I dropped the knowledge, I, I figured I've got it all. It's all connected, and I and I've got the key here. They don't want everybody to know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, how far away do you live from Pascagoula? It's a uh, five and a half hour drive. Five and a half hours. So yes, you went there on Thursday. Uh, mm-hmm. What what was what was it like there? What describe Pascagoula for the listening audience? What is it like there these days? It's a uh, it's sort of like a you plucked it out of time. I went to Wayne Lee's Grocery where I think that uh, Calvin Parker ended up going and getting a bacon lettuce and uh, tomato sandwich they don't mm-hmm. serve but ba- they don't serve anything cold anymore it's only hot meat so they didn't have lettuce or tomato so i just settled for some bacon and eggs they still had some eggs left over for, for breakfast so i got that but it's like uh man it's just everybody's hospitable it's like uh I, I went and i even saw a a random guy fishing on this on right where the site was and he was he had a couple lines set and i was just talking to him like man you know where's a good place to get seafood and stuff? What, what is it like out here? And he's like, man, every, everything's easy going. And uh, it's just a simpler way of life, I guess. That's the easiest way to put it. And I think that's why Calvin Parker even ended up moving back there uh, and still lives there today, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It It's a, a town that makes, it seems to make its living on the sea by and large. They, you know, it's a place where, you know, shipbuilders and fishermen kind of just flocked to and lived so you know for a, a relatively small community it it just from the reputation it seems to have it seems to be kind of a down-to-earth folksy kind of place with some down-to-earth people which you know uh, i think definitely sums up what the pascagoula abduction is and kind of how relatable it is because you know when you get into the abductions in the in 1973 before that you you have Betty and Barney Hill that's the biggest abduction that had taken place before this particular incident um the abduction of Herbert Shermer came um in 1967 didn't gain as much traction but still gained enough uh notoriety that the uh the people of colorado ended up blowing up his car for that just seems a bit extreme for a guy who claims he's been abducted by aliens you know i mean (laughs) why would you blow up his car but yeah i I don't know 
yeah, it's just it, it's a, just extreme. But like this is one of the most well-known abductions. Like if you put this on the Mount Rushmore, which is like it, it's a it's a terrible analogy to put like an abduction case on, but like it's up there with the most well-known abduction cases. And um, so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. The Pascagoula abduction. This is part of the year of the humanoids. So to recap the year of the humanoids uh, and in particular with its abduction cases, there were approximately, I want to say between six and eight abduction cases that were reported within this 17-day window in October, between October 11th and October 28th. And the Pascagoula was the first, and it's the most well-known abduction cases of this. And, um, you know, I kind of mentioned this in the previous episode, but uh, our, our main players here are Charles Hickson. He was 42 years old at the time. He was described by his co-author, William Mendez, as shy, sad-faced, and homely, which is a, like, it's a shit way to describe somebody <laughs> in a book. Like, uh, is that supposed to make him more relatable? Like, what what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. But if there's anything uh, that would be a descriptor, I think that sort of the, the, not the homely, but sort of down home, maybe that's what he meant, was down home, sort of good old country boy. Yeah, that definitely uh, describes Charlie Hickson to a T, I would say. He eventually went on to, and I actually have my copy of the book with me today, the, the original. It's, it, and you know what? He paid for this himself. Charlie Hickson paid for this himself. And like, it's, it's like really well done. You know, you've got pictures in the text instead of like, um, you know, a, a section in the middle. So uh, this was a really nice put together edition of a book from any UFO witness that has ever written a book about their case. But um, with William Mendez, they wrote UFO contact at Pascagoula. It's been reissued by Philip Mantle's press. I think it's like flying disc press in, uh, in England, but um, in, in many ways, William Mendez, like, he just seems like he makes himself out to seem like he's kind of above Charlie Hickson in, in this entire thing. And like, it's a burden for him to take this task on, but he takes it on. And it's just like, it, I don't know, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way in the book. But um, uh, Hickson was also a Korean War veteran at the time. Uh, he had fought in like five major battles. And, uh, you know, Calvin Parker, he was 19 years old. He had just moved to Pascagoula. Charlie Hickson convinced him to come up and, and work in the shipyard. So he decided to, even though he was basically leaving behind a fiance. And um, he had grown up with Charlie Hickson and Hickson's son, Eddie, who were about the same age. And, uh, you know, they, they spent a lot of time together fishing growing up, which that's the theme here, fishing, whatever it is, the UFOs seem to be drawn to the water here. I, I, you know, it's, 
it's weird. Like, I don't know why they're drawn to the water in this case, but they seem to. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, I know that Calvin Parker, so sort of the way we had tackled this is I know that you really dug in on uh, Charlie Hickson and I sort of took the Calvin Parker books, but I know on Calvin at least had two, both, both of his encounters. I think the one in 73 and the one in 93 both mm. happened when he was fishing. So, uh, and I think the other one happened near the river, the Pearl river, whenever he was with Charlie Hickson, when he was a kid, that one happened. And then no one happened whenever he, he was, at his house. So three of the four encounters he had in his lifetime happened near or on the water. Yeah. And uh, there's another incident that it's not as well known as it was back in 1973, but involves a USO that was spotted in Pascagoula about a month after this particular incident. But uh, the both of these men, they worked in the F.B. Walker and Sons shipyard. And Calvin had moved to the area on, a, on October 3rd, and he had been living with Charlie and his family. And uh, he didn't seem... The, the vibe I got from reading kind of the beginning of his first book is that he didn't seem to like it. He, he was kind of an independent guy. He wanted to live on his own. Uh, so... Uh, you know, he obliged him, moved in with him and just kind of grinned and bared it for a little bit. It it just seems. I, I don't totally understand Calvin's motivations for moving there, because, again, he's leaving behind a fiance. He's moving about 130 miles away. But um, I just. I just never got the inkling of why he would have done that. Do you, do you have any insight on why you think he did that? I I think it's sort of a situation where it, and throughout one thing that you'll note is that, I mean, Charlie, Charlie Hickson was like that father figure for, uh, you know, Parker throughout the whole situation. And it's sort of a situation where it's, it's like he took him under his wing. I mean, that, I think he was making $13 an hour at the shipyard. That was the right, which I mean, wasn't the best, but it was pretty dang good, especially for 1973 to be making $13 an hour. And it, I think it was a learning experience. And he thought that he could be under Hicks and, and that he had the best interest for him in general. Uh, uh, at least that's how I took it was sort of, he was looking out for him by getting him that job and getting him sort of a better leg up to sort of move on later, you know, get him something better after that. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, just giving uh, how well they knew each other and, and how they would pretty much how Calvin had grown up with uh, Charlie in his life. It kind of it, it definitely makes sense for why he would come up uh, to the area. But um, on October 11th, the night in question, it was a beautiful fall evening. There was a gentle breeze coming in over the Gulf Coast, and the pair moved from one spot to the next, trying to land uh, redfish and speckled trout. Uh, but they didn't seem to be, you know, catch. They didn't seem to be getting any bites that night. So they moved one more time to an abandoned shipyard, the Shalpeter Shipyard, and their lines didn't really receive that many bites, but. Hickson convinced Parker to stay out just a little bit longer and reaching for more bait. Hickson heard what he described as a quote unquote zipping sound. 
Now, as he was reaching for the bait, that was pretty much the same time that Calvin looked behind them, and they can both see a football-shaped object that was approaching from about 70 feet away. Um, Parker scanned Hickson's face for an explanation, but he he couldn't find any. Uh, They both had similar expressions. And this football-shaped craft was... It was silent. It's about 30 feet long by about 10 feet high. And it splurted this blue rotating light on it. And it hovered just about two feet above the ground. Uh, It was more blunt on one end of it. And it had a small dome-like structure on the top. And Hickson's attention was drawn to a pair of small windows at one end of it. An opening in the craft appeared... Uh, which caused this like blue glow to kind of diminish a little bit. And this fear crept up in this 42-year-old man as he marveled at the interior glow of this object. And that's when three beings appeared. Parker screamed and Hickson cried out, damn it, what do they want? What are they going to do? And when you listen to the way that they tell their stories and, and, and what they say and, and the phrases that you hear over and over again, I think it, it, it makes them very relatable in many ways. Like when you hear most abduction cases, you hear people talking about um, these kind of like sudden flashes of memory and it was just like oh there's figures above me or um i was woken by this bright light this is very down to earth folksy dude who's in the middle of something who has never experienced this before would you would you say that's a fair assessment yeah because i mean it's sort of funny especially the way calvin tells it like the things he focuses on uh is like he he remembers seeing the blue lights. Like he saw the reflection from the water first, I believe. And he said, all you've done did it now. It could because mm-hmm. he was real. Uh, the real bone of contention was that Charlie had gotten him in a place that said no trespassing. They had to wade through this tall grass where they had, you know, trash would wash up whenever the tide was low. And and he, he was just real antsy about it. And that first thing he thought was that. And he even says that every time you hear him tell the story, he'll talk about, oh, I, I just knew we were getting in trouble. We we're going to get arrested. But just the way that they tell the story, the way that they, and probably the most convincing bit of audio I've ever heard of any of any, you know, abduction ever. And we'll get to this is that thirty minutes that they have that conversation they have at the police station that you'll talk about later. But if you ever hear yeah. them talk about their story, it's always consistent. Uh, they always are. It seems like they're telling it for the first time though. Every time you hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, this is a quote from Charlie. Quote. As if to answer my question, they glided out of the opening, staying about the same height off the ground as the craft, and come for us. If they had a more human likeness, it would not have shocked me so. The head seemed to come directly to the shoulders. No neck and something resembling a nose came out to a point about two inches long. On each side of the head, about where ears would be, was something similar to a nose. Directly under the nose was a slit resembling a mouth. The arms were something like human arms, but long in proportion to the body. The hands resembled a mitten. There was a thumb attached. The legs remained together and the feet looked something like elephant's feet. The entire body was wrinkled and had a grayish color. 
There could have been eyes, but the area above the nose was so wrinkled that I couldn't tell. And I think we've come to kind of see the past Google abductors in kind of this like novelty sense of it's almost like you get used to what they look like. And yet his description of them is just absolutely terrifying just from top to bottom, from the, the way that he's relating it to all of these things. It's kind of has this like Franken, this kind of like Frankenstein, like almost a like mishmash of parts to describe it. And, and it makes it, I think a, that much more terrifying, you know? Yeah. And especially like, it, it seems like Calvin Parker is more in the camp now. I think he's changed his position over the years, but like he's sort of, and we'll get to the female creature later that he saw, but it's mm. like, he thinks they, they talk about the very robotic, uh, almost the mitten like hands are almost like claws. They come to a point is what Calvin said. And mm-hmm. there's even one, one being that has like a con when he gets in the ship has a convex sort of glass, like opening that has black. It looks like it has a black background. He said with blue marbles for eyes. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of, it, it's like almost like you can't even imagine a picture of what it is. Like I think yeah. even the pictures we see aren't, well, of course, aren't, I don't even know if they're close to what it is because I think it could be more of a, because what Calvin talks about is it could be, he said it's very robotic. So he even thinks it is a robot that works for her possibly that they weren't even really beings. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Or robot hybrids. It, it's of course it's, it's very strange territory, even for UFO abductions, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hickson's thoughts became darker, wondering if he would disappear like some people did, never to be seen again. The interior of the ship was blinding as he was escorted inside, one being on each side of him. All he could think about was death, authorities dredging the river to find them. Distracted by this thought, he didn't notice the eye emerging from the wall at first. The giant floating eye approached him, moving to within six inches of Hickson's face. It began to move up and down his body, scanning him from top to bottom. Now, there are kind of these like um, conflicting reports. Uh, He's either kind of leaned up against a table or like up against a wall or something like that. But he's kind of like uh, stiff and rigid, paralyzed uh, where he is when this um what he describes as an eye like a giant eye and and this is something that you know in his in the tape um the 30 minute tape that the the, uh, the authorities recorded um it, it was the best way that he could describe it uh the being had let him go and were standing behind him during the exam hickson couldn't move and he tried to yell out please don't take me away but no sound would come forth. His thoughts wandered to his time in Korea. And then, just as soon as it had begun, it was over. The beings had gripped him again, escorted him out of the ship, and he fell to the ground where he was released. Hickson saw Calvin standing with his arms outstretched. His face conveyed pure terror. Hickson crawled to him and stood as the craft made the zagging sound again, disappearing into the distance. Just then, a phrase came into Hickson's mind. We are peaceful. We meant you no harm. Hickson shook Parker, 
And the frightened young man responded, no, no, please don't, thinking it was then back for him. Charlie, it seemed as if I died and came back to life. Are you sure we're okay? So Parker's experiences in the ship are are, are very different from Charlie's. Um, do you, do you want to take his experiences? Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, so most of these, he had multiple regression, I guess, hypnosis regression, which I don't know how. I, it, it's sort of been, there's two ways to look at stuff like that, but I'll, I'll just read it how how it is. And I guess people can take it for what it will, but here's what the, what he got during his regression. Basically, Calvin, he I think the first thing that he had was he felt, and this is one thing that I thought was interesting, was that he felt a, whenever they grabbed his arm when they first came off the ship, he felt a prick and he heard air and he all of a sudden became relaxed. Uh, and even there was a file found, and he pointed this out in his second book, there was a file found whenever Heineck and, uh, was it Harder? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, that they found, which Dr. Harder, Dr. James Harder, is that's like an, a great adult film name if there ever was yeah. one. <laughs> right. So, you know, if somebody hasn't used it, somebody better scoops it up. But, uh, you know, he sort of felt that. He became really relaxed. And they and he they glided towards the ship, which I know that uh, Hickson had the same experience. But he sort of, you know, he floats towards the ship. He don't he doesn't see any facial features, and that's one thing he was real keen on is he didn't see the facial features. Uh, so to, to of course the two grab grab Charlie and one grab him, and he heard he he heard a shot. So he heard the shot of air. He noticed the pincher type appendages, and he never got a good look at their face. Like I said. They he so Char so I'll, Charlie also mentioned that they buzz to communicate, which is something that the buzzing that I think whenever they're on the ship, like Calvin comes in, he sees this like he calls it a glass type table, but it's not glass; it's like a crystal, mm-hmm. and and he sort of floats above it at a forty five degree angle, and he doesn't feel like he's laying on the table because he comes in, he turns left when they go into the ship, and he's sort of floating above this a blue metallic like square with a silver bottom comes out and comes right in front of his face. And it's about the size of a deck of cards and it just, it's above him and it's making clicking noises like a camera, which uh, there was actually, we, you know, we don't want to go over every single encounter, but there's another encounter similar to this in Mississippi around this time where somebody had a smaller lot come down out of a bigger lot in the sky. And it just came down in front of them, made a clicking noise like a camera, mm-hmm. like almost like, I don't know if they're imitating the camera or if it right. has some actual function, uh, but then a new slender being that was smaller looking, uh, it made him feel safe entered. And that being was about five foot tall and it was actually resembled more of a female had big brown eyes and a very pleasant and was very pleasant looking compared to what he called the ugly ones. And he <laughs> listened to Calvin tell the story. He very just promptly keeps calling them the ugly ones throughout the other sort of more robotic ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, he heard a hissing noise and he heard words don't be afraid, even though its lips didn't really move. And he, he sort of had a hard time processing that, but he understood what it was thinking. And, and he believes that it was reading his mind and sort of pulling his thoughts out and sort of interpreting them. Uh, something came out of the wall and began circling his body from head to toe. He thought it was something the government was experiencing on that, you know, experimenting on with, with because of the nuclear shipyard being right there, which that plays into this as well. I, I believe personally, mm-hmm. but the big ugly one, as he calls it, come back, came back in. 
it took his arm and blowed him out from the craft, and he was returned to about the same spot on the river, and he couldn't put his arms down. Whenever you hear him, he said this in multiple interviews. It was like he stepped on a rattlesnake. He will say that frequently. He's paralyzed. His arms are straight out. Charlie calls out to him uh, to come. He said he heard a zipping noise like a strong wind, the same thing uh, I think that Charlie talked about he heard when it came, and he said he it propelled straight up. But I think in other instances, uh, he said that he didn't see it go up in, in regression. So, I, you know. Uh, also, another thing he was driving, was it a 73 Rambler, a yellow 73 Rambler? Yeah. The passenger side windows were shattered, and also there's a bottle of Jim Beam that was shattered on the inside. But the window was shattered in place, and it looked shattered, but it was just sort of hung in place like, you know, tempered glass does. And when whenever uh, Charlie opened the door, it just fell on the inside and shattered everywhere. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'll let you pick it back up from there. That's basically his experience. Yep. That, that is exactly his experiences as he's recalled them under uh, hypnosis. Um, when they got back to the banks of the river, um, Charlie, he, he became like that protective adult to Calvin. He basically said, hey, I'll say that you passed out. I will... Um, I'll, I will talk about this. At first, they wanted to um, kind of not say anything about this, but it seemed to keep eating away at Charlie. And that was when, you know, they started talking and, you know, uh, he didn't want to, he didn't really want to drag Calvin into this, but he couldn't let it go either. Um, in UFO contact at Pascagoula, uh, Charlie relates it to his experience in Korea. And this is a direct quote from the book. Uh, quote, I remembered a night a long time ago, 1952, on the central front in Korea, north of the 38th parallel, which is interesting. 38th parallel. I dig that. Um, my company had been called on to help stop an attack where the North Koreans and Chinese had broke the lines of the, of the first capital division of the South Korean army. Charlie, what's it like up there? A replacement recently from the States asked me. I tried to explain it to him, but combat is something you, just, you have to experience yourself to understand. I saw him scream and cry that night after we helped stop the attack and move the bodies from the battlefield. Charlie, were you scared? He asked me. Hell yes, I was scared. No man in his right mind can say he wasn't scared. But that was normal fear. The enemy was there to kill or be killed. Tonight was different. Something that had to be from another world, the unknown, that is not supposed to exist. There was more than normal fear. There was almost panic, fear I had never known. Would they come back? What did they do to me? Questions that couldn't be answered. And one thing that Calvin gets into in his book, and one thing that he says about Charlie over and over and over and over again, Charlie was a pretty good writer. He could convey what had happened to the best of his abilities with the resources that he had at hand. With Calvin... When you read his quotes, the, the accent comes out in full. The um, just uh, his use of language. It's very it's very specific to where he's from. That's, that's probably the best way that I can put it. It's very southern, you know. 
Yeah, and and I mean, it's even I guess to sum it up, the best is some of the things that you just hear him say when he's talking about stuff like this. Like he ended, I think he ended up having taken two weeks off, and he was going to move back. And just as it shows you what type of guy he is, so he gets a check, and they he said he calls them. They pay, even paid him, overpaid him for. I guess not working. They said, here's your little extra to get you going. And he called him back and he's like, you know what, who do I turn this check to? I'm not going to cash the second check. Cause I didn't work those hours. I didn't earn this money, mm-hmm. you know? And so they said, no, don't, don't do it. Just keep it, you know? And so he, yeah. he just ended up ripping and ripping it up. He didn't cash. It. And also whenever Calvin was very reluctant, but it, he did agree to go to the Michael, Michael Douglas show. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he goes to the, he goes downstairs to the lobby of the, you know, where they serve food and he first or tries to order a biscuit gravy, which they, and this is in Chicago, Illinois, by the way, tries to order biscuits and gravy. They do not have that. He, <laughs> then he asks, then he asks for, uh, I think he asked for a BLT. They didn't have that. And then he said he asked for cheese grits and they had no idea what it was. So he's like, he just laughed and he said, just give me a coffee. And he said, it's some of the worst coffee you've ever had. It was really weak. <laughs> They get in a limo to drive across the road, just like it's across the street. He he thinks it's overkill, and then once they he they go in this place called it called the green room. It's a blue room. He's like, what the hell do they call this the green room for? It don't make any sense. Refuses to wear makeup because he's like he don't want to be considered a drag queen is what he his wording. Mm-hmm. And then anyway, after the show, he says, "I'm not taking a limo." He walks across the road and he beats him there by 20 minutes. You know that, that's just yeah. sort of the type of person that he is that just to, you know, no nonsense. Like, Hey, you know, I, I'm just, I like things simple. Yeah, exactly. Uh, doesn't need to be fancy. Um, very independent, very down to earth, just someone who doesn't want to give up that independence very easily. And you know, that, that definitely, you know, sums them up, uh, pretty, pretty well. Um, so they raced back into town and I think one of the first stops they made was at like the local, um, newspaper office. Uh, and, and like, I, I, there are, you know, some accounts are more detailed than others. Uh, Charlie said that he had gone in there to see if he could, you know, see what time it was. Um, and in one quote, he says he came out and said, well, there wasn't a clock in there. And another quote, uh, there was a, a somebody on staff there. I don't know if it was a reporter or not. Um, and claiming that Charlie said that he wanted to tell his story to someone and that the person that was in there kind of uh, said, you know, come back in the morning when there's a reporter here. Uh, but they then made a phone call, I, I believe at a pay phone to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And at the end of the line was a tired woman's voice who told them that the Air Force didn't handle stuff like that anymore and that they should contact the local sheriff. 20 minutes and several miles later, Charlie phoned the sheriff's department. Um, they didn't believe him, but told him, come on over and we'll talk about it. Um, it there are also claims that uh, I believe the police actually came out, looked at them in their vehicle and, and told them to follow them to the station. It 
kind of goes back and forth in the accounts that I read, but yeah. And then I also heard that Calvin actually said in one of his, in, in one of his uh, tellings of the story that they, he actually did a full sobriety test on the side of the road. He jumped on one leg, he got back in the car. And then when he got there, he actually blew into a big balloon, which he thought was sort of funny watching it blow up. Uh, that was yeah. another thing that he mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Charlie and, and Calvin were interviewed like multiple times, two to three times by the uh, sheriff's department. Um, they were interviewed separately, interviewed together. Um, and their stories were pretty much the same every time. Uh, and finally, they brought them into a room where there was a tape recorder hidden. And the sheriff's department interviewed them again. And then they stepped out briefly, left the tape rolling, you know, kind of uh, this. Um, this was on the advice of a local judge. That was what I was told by uh, a listener um, because they know who the judge was because it was their grandfather. <laughs> but um they left the tape rolling wow. and we're going to, we're going to include a portion of that tape uh, right about now, right here. Jesus Christ. As you listen to that, you can tell that clearly they've gone through something. Like this yeah. was a traumatic experience for them. It's clearly comes through in the tape and everybody that heard that tape, including the police officers were like, yeah, we believe them. Like they're sincere. They, th there's no way that they could be making it up. They don't sound like they're making it up. And if you listen to it right there, you know, they're not making it up, you know? Oh yeah. And especially like when you go through trauma like that, they really haven't had time to process it. I mean, this is, one one reason that set this case sets this case apart, as I'm sure everybody knows, is like it was reported immediately, and this is immediately after it happens. They haven't went home, they haven't changed clothes, they haven't had time to sit on it. They're still still up there, man. It's still 
just processing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they both go home for the night. They don't get any sleep, as you would imagine anybody in that kind of situation wouldn't. And they show up to work the next morning. They had trouble focusing, though, because before long, there was a phone call that had come in from a reporter in Jackson, Mississippi. And from there, uh, that's when the story starts to receive a lot of national attention. And it's Sheriff Fred Diamond who is ultimately responsible. Fred Diamond was the sheriff that, you know, interviewed them. And uh, even after they said, look, don't, don't let the press know, don't tell the press, he still informs them. And Charlie Hickson was not happy about that. Uh, he phoned Sheriff Fred Diamond to express his anger and all about this. And Fred reassured him, look, I'll handle the press. But the problem was they didn't really do that great a job handling the press is what you'll all come to find here. But Calvin and Charlie, they were called into the general manager's office and asked to relay their side of the story. And after they did, uh, their boss basically said, hey, you should go get some legal counsel. And they did in Joe Kalingo, who was the attorney for the shipyard itself. Um, And it was Kalingo's suggestion that they both take lie detector tests later on. Charlie Wood, he passed without with flying colors. Calvin never did, though, did he? So I was listening to multiple interviews and somewhere along the way, he said that he had taken two polygraphs and a voice Mm. stress analysis test. Yeah. But where that happened and when I'm not 100 percent positive because it didn't mention it in either book that I read. But he has right. said it in interviews, recent interviews of like circa 2019 interviews. He said it. OK, yeah, um, I know it didn't happen in 1973. So I'm assuming that, it, you know, this happened probably after 1993, which is when uh, he started to really come back. Um, it's come into the forefront to tell his side of the story. But Charlie was growing paranoid that they had been exposed to radiation and feared that he may be spreading it to everyone. So Detective Tom Huntley, uh, who was also, I believe, at the police station the night before, and uh, Joe Kalingo rushed them to Singing River Hospital Unfortunately, they didn't have the ability to test them for that. So they phoned Keesler Air Force Base, who agreed to test them. And they ended up testing negative. Now, when they showed up in a, on base, apparently they got like this extensive military escort. I don't know how extensive military escorts are when you come onto a base like that with, with civilians. Maybe it is intense like that. But I think they were talking about like, you know, like a almost a dozen soldiers that escorted them and, and uh, a, a bunch of um, others in the um, when they were getting tested and such. But um, on Saturday, October 13th, two days later here, Dr. James Harder of APRO and Dr. J. Allen Hynek of the newly formed Center for UFO Studies or QFOS had arrived and interviewed the pair of experiencers. Harder had showed up early, so he interviewed him in the morning. And then Hynek interviewed them after lunch. And 
Harder was the one that pushed hypnosis big time. But Charlie was adamant. He's like, no, you're, you're not going to be picking in my brain. <laughs> and that was the phrase he kept saying over again. It's like, you're not going to pick my brain. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, ultimately, I think what um, convinced them to do it was Heineck's recommendation too. I think Heineck was kind of looked a little more highly upon just because of his uh, credentials, his reputation. Uh, but eventually they were regressed. And what doctor, it was Dr. Harder, who, or no, it was actually Heineck, who said in a newspaper article titled, uh, Scientists Term Pascagoula UFO as True. He stated, both men are completely solid and honest. They are not unbalanced people. The two displayed feelings of terror under hypnosis that would be virtually impossible to fake. They have been through a very terrifying experience. The next day, uh, Sunday, Harder put Calvin under hypnosis again, uh, but brought him out quickly uh, when the terror just kind of became too much for him. So they really didn't get much from the hypnosis sessions that Calvin had been a part of. And I don't think they really got much from Charlie either, but. Yeah. I think the main things they got from Charlie uh, was that he noticed something on top of the craft that he later described as a, as a dome. Yeah. Uh, and also he started randomly bleeding on the Friday that after the abduction in his upper yes. left arm. And it was apparently enough to cause alarm. He said he wiped it away with a handkerchief and it didn't stop bleeding until that afternoon. And uh, it first started bleeding at about 8 a.m. in the morning and he saw the small puncture wound and he noticed it bleeding again at 6 p.m. at home and showered. And, and after he showered, he, he didn't notice any more bleeding. And he may have yeah. he, he thought he may have been hit by, by a metal piece. And also, I think that the hypnosis sort of, I think Harder thought that it worked because it sort of was like, hey, he reacted to it in the moment instead of like, it was like he was reliving it, I guess. But I think that mm -hmm. was the two main things that the bleeding and then the dome on top. Yep. That's also kind of like when you look at the way that Harder took it and Heineck took it, Heineck was more um, objective in his determining. He determined basically that he believed that these guys were telling the truth, but he didn't know exactly what had happened to them. Whereas Harder was basically saying, yeah, it was aliens. Aliens came and did this. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, Harder's MO when he's uh, in, in the cases that he is involved in. Um, in many ways, it seems like he's the guy that jumps off the deep end and wants to pin it on aliens. It's not always the case in every single uh, instance, but uh, in this one, it definitely seemed to be with Heineck. He basically said, hey, if I don't have any money to investigate this case, I can't stay. Sorry, guys, I'm leaving. And he basically peaced out. Whereas I think Harder, um, he stuck around for a little while, uh, at least for a day before he, he left himself. And I think he might have worked with Charlie a little bit on additional hypnosis sessions. But these investigators didn't really do much for both of them. And on Monday, the press attention just kind of became way too much. And the shipyard asked both Charlie and Calvin to take two weeks off. And they did, basically. And Calvin 
basically moved back home, uh, which was 130 miles away. He seemed to, I don't know, just try to live a normal life. I, I believe he tried to enlist in the Marines, if I remember correctly. Is that right? He didn't write about that in either of his books, uh, so I'm not 100% sure. You could be right on that. Yeah, it was um, it was something that I think was mentioned in UFO Contact at Pascagoula that he had tried enlisting in the Marines and he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't able to cut it. But um, he kind of just, like, returned home, lived his life, he got married, um, their marriage, I think, initially lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of like seven years. Uh, they got divorced, lived apart for what damn near close to like over 20 or 30 years. And then they got back together yeah. and remarried something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a while. And as we covered in the previous episode, the South was part of the year of the humanoids flap. It played a particularly big role in all of the, the, the stuff that happened. So um, there were a number of incidents um, on and around October 11th in the Mississippi area. So four days before the abduction took place in Petal, Mississippi, a local constable had a close encounter of his own. 80 miles north of Pascagoula on the night of October 7th, Constable Charlie Delk was watching Columbo at around 8.15 p.m. when he received a phone call from a sheriff's dispatch. A concerned citizen had a complaint about a strange flying object with flashing blue and green lights. And over the last few weeks, he had received several calls about the UFOs, but there was no way that Delk was missing Columbo that night. We didn't have DVR back in the day. He's not missing Columbo for anything, and he's definitely not going out to deal with any of them damn pranksters. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't miss Columbo. If Columbo's on, it, it can wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Probably just some kids jerking off out in the, out in the field anyway. Yeah, it, it, that's how it happens, man. That's that's, that's what goes on. Those kids, <laughs> it, it's they're just causing trouble all over the place. It's terrible, you know? Um, so a short time later, he receives another call from the dispatcher. This woman is terrified and desperately wants an officer to come out and check on it. So Delk joked that uh, with, with the dispatcher that uh, he was going out there to go and catch it. So, you know, these, these investigations were routine by now. And uh, by the time he got out there, he figured, yeah, sure. The UFO won't even be around. So he arrived at the woman's residence uh, around eight 30 this time though, an object was quick to catch his attention above the tree line a strange oval bathed in yellow neon glow floated an antenna protruded from the top of it giving the strange object an uh, an old-fashioned look it floated slowly enough for delk to follow it and he did for five miles to the town of leesville he kept in constant radio contact with the dispatcher giving a play-by-play account of everything going on The UFO settled above an electrical power installation, then two streams of blue flame, similar to an acetylene torch, erupted from the UFO. A sound like gas escaping from a soda can accompanied this. 
At times, Delk found himself directly underneath the object, and his radio, car lights, and engine would fail in that order. It took 15 minutes for his car uh, to come back to life. And a few minutes later, the radio again kind of came back to life. And it's, it's interesting in these cases because the car systems are dying in sequence. They don't die all at the same time. It's one goes, then another goes, then another goes. And it's usually like um, lights, radio, engine, and then engine, lights, radio. It, it's very strange how the sequencing of these things happens. It's, I think it's one of the most odd features that probably doesn't get talked about with UFOs enough is the weird ways in which they affect the cars, you know? Yeah. And there are multiple sightings, you know, related to this, even Hickson. And uh, I know Parker talked about it during his, is that he couldn't crank the car when it first started. And he, even when he did crank the car, he still had issues with it running. He said it ran really bad. And this is a brand new 1973, you know, uh, car that he got. And then he ended up changing the spark plugs and the wires out himself. And he said it still just never ran quite right. And there was another, uh, group of abductions on the same day or not abductions, but it was around the same. It was on the same day that the Hickson and Parker abduction was, there was a group of kids. I think there was teenagers. There was a woman. She was going on a double date with a roommate. They were going a, a, along the railroad track right there, you know, in Pascagoula. They said the craft came down almost like it went, it just hovered above their car. The car started to die. And it was, she said it was like every radio station at once tried to come through the radio. And mm -hmm. then the car died after that. And yeah. that was on the exact same day and probably the same craft, if I had to imagine, that ended up eventually getting uh, Parker and, and Charlie after that. Yeah. It was a short time later that Delk noticed that this object kind of, it kind of turned on its other end. So the antenna was facing down and then it just kind of disappeared, um, which, which is creepy. But uh, on the night of the 11th itself, um, there are a, a few instances that uh, in, in which some people witness UFOs. Uh, one of them is Larry Booth. And on the night of the 11th, uh, he was he he had been a World War Two Air Corps veteran uh, and he went through this nightly ritual of extinguishing the lights at the service station he worked at in Pascagoula and turning the key on the lock. He was he was caught by a strange object hovering eight feet above the phone lines. The craft emitted a red light that would turn in clockwise motion. The night was soundless around him and the sight was serene. Almost Booth quickly moved to the payphone to call his wife. And when he did, the object moved away from the safety of the booth. He saw it move out of his view. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting that this UFO doesn't want to be gossip for this for this guy's wife <laughs> yeah 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 definitely the the ufo wasn't having it and also i one thing i thought was interesting he was watching kung fu so yes. you know obviously after that's his last thing he does and he also noted that it was the lights were close together circling half the speed of like an ambulance slot if you ever seen an ambulance slot sort of do that yep. and when they diminished it sort of was like a 10 he saw multiple lights and it went from like 10 to eight to six and it made a humming sound. He said, and it even began sort of very slowly uh, going over the pine trees and leaving. 
Uh, you know, mm-hmm. once he started talking about his wife, once you bring your wife in the picture, you know, it all goes to goes to crap after that, really. Uh, yeah, UFO. <laughs> like, look, I'm I'm not getting involved in this. I'll see you later. We we didn't need to bring her into this, but apparently you, you all want to, you know, make it worse. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the situation that we have on our hands here. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't blame the UFO. I you don't want to get caught in that kind of um, conversation because it's not going to oh, end well for you. Ever. Not at all. Not at all. No. Uh, there is another incident that we 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 mentioned last week. Um that occurred on the Tanner Williams road in Alabama. Um, and y- you said this is like 45 minutes away or so from Pascagoula, something like that. Yeah. Tanner, uh, Tanner Williams road, I believe. I'm pretty sure I passed it. Let's see. I can look it up right now because I was, I've got, I already have all these places already in my phone. <laughs> For, yeah. 40, 41 minutes. Yeah. 41 about 45 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Okay. So um, this you know, it, it's a three-year-old boy here, but uh, it, it's worth mentioning again. On the same time, at this, on the same date, a three-year-old boy reports to his mother that he had been playing in the backyard with quote some old monster. He said it was gray with wrinkled skin and pointed ears. So I think that's significant. And uh, you know, we were kind of, you know breaking this down last week spencer and i and uh you know he had brought up like well you know it's a kid's imagination it could come up with anything and it's like well if you think about it you know the skin it kind of seems like an elephant skin so i think that would be familiar to a three-year-old and i also think like you know the the pointy nose the carrot nose of a snowman would be kind of familiar so you know Familiar terminology. It's interesting that this kid said this. Apparently, the Pascagoula aliens are are cool with kids. I guess I don't know. Yeah, because I mean that's that's an exact description of the Pascagoula aliens. Like mm-hmm. You you couldn't get anybody. You couldn't get a description better than that. Really. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially uh, somebody unfamiliar with the case. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean. If, a three-year-old i don't see a three-year-old being familiar with ufo cases so uh (laughs) you know i mean unless there's any really cool three-year-olds out there uh please get at us uh hit me up on social media if your three-year-old digs ufo cases let me know um but years later there would be a bunch of additional eyewitnesses that would come forward with their accounts of seeing strange stuff in the area on that, on the night of October 11th, uh, two of them are Maria and Jerry Blair. They were sitting in the parking lot of Graham's seafood in their 69 Pontiac GTO. Uh, they were waiting on a captain to take Jerry offshore, but apparently the captain was running late that night. Um, and as the night wore on, they apparently just like waited around for hours for this person to show up. But after dark, Maria saw something strange. It was a blue light in the sky. Observing it for a while, Maria said it looked like it was tracing the banks of the Pascagoula River. It moved back and forth um, over the course of 25 minutes. 
Her first impression was that it was a plane, but the flight pattern was odd. Also, uh, it's flying a little too low, I would say, uh, but maybe not for, I don't know what your typical seaplanes were like in that area, but still, it just seems like an odd observation. Uh, Jerry saw the object too, but he dismissed it outright as a helicopter. Eventually, the boat did arrive and they put the incident out of their mind until walking down to the lighted pier, they heard a strange sound. Quote, we heard this loud thumping splash in the river. I looked over the side of the pier and that's when I thought I saw a person in the river. I was looking right down on it. It looked like a person, but there was something different about it. It only came to the surface of the water. As soon as I saw it, it just went back down in the water. Maria assumed this was a diver, and Jerry said it was a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dolphins that far yeah. up the coast. Yeah, Hi. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, <laughs> they later heard reports of Hickson and Parker's experiences, and they decided that they changed their mind. Uh, it was definitely an alien in the water at that point. <laughs> yeah, and actually, some I don't know if you had a little bit more on the story. Apparently, Blair got in touch with uh, Hickson, whatever, or not Hickson, in, in touch with Parker, and they sort of gave a little bit more info. Apparently, her husband was very, he always said that he never saw anything, and he sort of made like a the opposite of a deathbed confession, or I guess it'd still be a deathbed confession, that he actually did see them, uh, that he saw them on the water floating towards the dock. And they were on the east side, whereas Calvin and uh, Charlie were on the west side. And the pier that they were on was a steel pier that sort of came out 20 feet. And after being there, if you're 20 feet out from there, it's really not that far from the other side. Like, it's really not far at all from the other bank. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred feet. It's really not that far at all. It's not that wide. And also mm -hmm. on the way in, that something that sort of confirms that they were there on the way in. And this is sort of how the Blairs first came to be connected with Hickson was that one thing that he noted in his account was the, in the regression hypnosis therapy, was that he noticed a red Pontiac with the black top. And their daughter said, hey, that's the exact car they had then. And it was them that they had passed. Go, They were going into the east side, and they had passed them over the bridge when they were coming to the west side. Uh, so which I thought was, you know, what are the odds of that, you know? Right. That they, and, and so, I mean, it just matches up perfect. And they also said that she thought that they were in gray suits, sort of like swimmer suits, diver suits at first. Uh, so so that, so basically her husband lied all these years is basically what that boils down to before he eventually had the deathbed confession that he saw them floating over the water. But that was uh, recently, maybe 2019, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was only a few years ago. Uh, it, it was a kind of a big deal uh, when this came out uh, a few years ago you know, additional eyewitnesses coming forward because it kind of always seemed like that solidified. This is what happened. This is how uh, this went down. But um, there were other eyewitnesses that were reported in the um, local papers too um, in 2019, 2020. Uh, later that evening, a few miles away from the encounter spot, Judy Branning was sitting in her car at a traffic light on a double date with a roommate sitting uh, on some railroad tracks on the corner of Chicot and Highway 90. 
uh, a set of lights caught her attention, believing them to be airplane lights. They quickly changed their minds when they when the lights flew over the car. According to Branning, quote, it didn't make a noise. It had bright, bright lights. It got closer and it was hovering. It was kind of a saucer shape or disc shape with a rounded top. The radio started sounding like it was running through all the stations and the car went dead. We were freaking out. Um, Once it had passed their car, the craft shot straight up into the air at an incredible rate of speed, disappearing into the night. For years, the two couples stayed silent about it, but Judy came forward with her story 45 years later. Joey Nelson, who was 25 years old at the time, played pool for money. I mean, he's a pool, he's a pool shark. I dig it. You got to get out there. You got to make that coin. And uh, he was driving on US 90 on the night of the 11th between Biloxi and Pascagoula, headed to New Orleans. A giant orb of light lit up the sky and seemed to travel with the car for a bit. Nelson claimed that a small ball of light came down from the bigger one, approximately the size of a beach ball, and seemed to look into the window at him. Quote, I don't know how far away it was, but it seemed like if that windshield wasn't there, I could have touched it. It started flashing and clicking and flashing and clicking. We could hear, we could audibly hear it. I know it sounds crazy, but it seemed like they were taking pictures. It seemed like they were like it was in front of me for 10 minutes or so. I don't know. We were just mesmerized. Then the object shot off at a high rate of speed and Nelson felt like he was coming out of a trance to the clarion ledger. Nelson stated, quote, it was like we woke up. We couldn't move or or regain our thoughts until it was gone. Um, so yeah, that that's uh, I believe that's the case that you had mentioned earlier um, with mm-hmm. the clicking and stuff. So, um, it, uh, and it's, it, yeah. I was gonna say if you don't mind, Rob, I'll just I'll just go off over a couple more that I yeah. thought were interesting. Uh, yep. The 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 Mr. Lewis Lee encounter was one. And he and actually he and Charles Hickson actually worked together at the at the yard, and he was operating the crane that night at the Pascagoula River, which has always been sort of a point of contention that hey, if if there was something there, the crane operator would have saw it. And if you go and you look like it's directly, you still see that crane there today—a huge red crane looking left. Uh, so it was right there. And apparently, what he said that he saw the object over the river, and his crane was having some mechanical issues. His foreman yelled something to him, and he looked away. And when he looked back, it was gone. The craft was egg-shaped with blue, super silver lights, and it was almost like you could see it through. A, you could see through it like a welding arc at arc at night, which is mm-hmm. also something interesting because Calvin also talked about welding arcs in his story. They both had the same thing, and it's about that was about two miles diagonal of where the two yeah. of them were. Yeah, there was there was also a, a police officer dispatcher at the time named Nick Diamond. He had received the. Uh, he had received the call from Hickson. So he was the actual uh, person who received the call. You know, some other people, Becky uh, Carlisle was one, heard some friends saw a UFO that night and told their parents, and then the, they didn't believe him until the next day when they saw it in the paper. Judy Thompson saw it over a house in the east when she was babysitting that night. Uh, you know, it goes on and on. And I, there was another one. If I, I've got so many notes here. I probably shouldn't have taken so many notes. 
<laughs> there was the the officers that were coming over the bridge that pulled over on the side of the road to see it, that they saw it going overhead. And they noticed that the traffic along the way was also seeing it as well, but they were the only people to pull off and stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there was a lot of sightings. Uh, uh, There's a Greek UFO uh, researcher who saw it as well. So just a ton of sightings. Yeah. The, there's, you know, not just in Pascagoula, outside of Pascagoula, you know, um, uh, in Bruce, Mississippi, 300 miles away, uh, Rosie Nail, she was staying with a girlfriend and had just put her girls to bed when she uh, and her friend had stepped out on their porch for a cigarette. Uh, and the rural sky offered up, you know, stunning views of constellations and while she was searching the skies for them, Rosie noticed a falling star and her perception changed when she noticed the object racing across the canopy of stars. As it moved in their direction, another light shot out of the main one. The larger of the two moved downward in her direction. It grew in size and looked like the sun. The object changed colors as it dropped lower to the horizon and their dogs began barking and acting as if they were ready to attack. Rosie ventured into the yard to get a better look. She was immediately overcome with a sense of fear. Quote, I froze. I was terrified. I don't know what I was terrified about. Then the light changed course, moving back into the sky as if in reverse. Uh, that's the way that she described it going. The There is this infamous case at least as they tell it in the uh you're the humanoids report it's mentioned in the beginning um there are basically four um cases that david webb notes in his report as kind of differentiating uh themselves from the you're the humanoid sightings uh to kind of take on a life of their own the pascagoula abduction the coin helicopter case um, the Eddie Webb case, which is uh, one that I'll be covering on Patreon, in which Eddie, uh, he was near, um, he was in Missouri, and he uh, he was in Cape Girardeau. He looked, uh, he saw a UFO, it was following his truck, he looked outside the window, and it blinded him and partially melted his glasses. It's, in, it's kind of one of those... Uh, you know, not well-known cases, but kind of well-known to certain people. Um, the other is a USO that had been spotted in Pascagoula about a month after the Pascagoula abduction. Um, this is uh, directly from the um, United Press International uh, report about it. It involved a man named Raymond Ryan who uh, coincidentally was the same age as Calvin Parker or uh, as Charlie Hickson, who's 42 years old. So the Coast Guard confirmed the sighting. Ryan said the underwater light followed his boat in repeated efforts to beat the thing away with an oar made uh, the light get dimmer. At first, he relayed. He decided not to tell anyone about the sighting. Much publicity has surrounded the reported sighting several weeks ago of an unidentified flying object in the same vicinity by two Pascagoula fishermen who claimed they were taken on board the craft by creatures with claws. 
But Ryan said he finally summoned his twin brother, Raim, and the two of them went back to the brackish waters and poked at the light with oars again. <laughs> the object yeah. was located in four to six feet of water, moving at four to six knots. The Coast Guard report said the officers named the object an unidentified submerged illuminating object and described it as an amber beam four to six inches in diameter attached to a bright metal object. And it's not every day that the U S coast guard confirms your USO sightings, you know? <laughs> no. Yeah. And I calmed through that report sort of looking at things and uh, some interesting things. It was almost like to at one point, like they, they originally saw it and it disappeared. Like it would, the light would, it was like it would navigate okay under the boats. Like it would be, it, w- it wouldn't get hit by the boats, even though the water, I believe, was only, uh, I think it was, f- it was four to six feet under the water is what they said. But the water wasn't, but I think at the deepest point, like 10 feet maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just sort of weird that it, of the way it works because they, they said that they also, there's four boats total. They lost two and a half hours of fishing time. And usually, because usually I think it was like one ton per boat, they only caught 400 pounds that night. The object did not consistently move when disturbed or passed over. Light from the object was directed toward the surface and came from a coherent source about three inches in diameter with a surface intersection circular elliptical size. It was about 10 to 12 feet in size. It was described as a yellowish amber with a light tint. And it was described as too bright to look at. And it was like a parachute underwater. Mm -hmm. Uh, It felt metallic when it struck, but it wasn't struck often. And when the ore entered the lot, this is what I thought was weird. The ore was no longer visible whenever they put it in the lot on top that was shining, they couldn't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just sort of weird. Oh, here it is. The motors in the boats were one and a half feet max, uh, you know, going down. And the minimum water depth was four to five feet was the minimum. And it was never struck or passed over. And also there was a, it's not on any top. I, th- I don't think it's on any map or anything, but the fishermen in the area had been there 40 or 50 years or any, any amount of time had fished it, knew that there was a gully and it sort of traveled this craft traveled along that gully almost, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's sort of just sort of weird. And, and it was yeah. confirmed by, you know, seen by nine people. So including the two coast guards and, and eventually they just came looked and they, they tried to, they, the funny thing I read the coast guard report and they're like, yeah, we're going to come out here and look at this. And then they tried to hit it. They tried the same methods. They tried to hit it with an oar as well. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm like, are you kidding me? You bring the big guns out and they try to hit it with an oar as well. But, you know, that's basically that that report was very interesting to read to comb through. Yeah. So it, it was something in the neighborhood of two dozen cases that were reported on the night of October 11th. And um, as, you know, the the years would creep by, Charlie Hickson would describe having additional encounters after this main one in January of 1974, he was out hunting when he saw the same craft from October in a clearing 25 yards from where he was before long, he received a message. We mean, you no harm. We mean, you no harm. And we need, we mean no one, any harm. You may communicate with us later. You have endured. You have been chosen. There is no need for fear. We will communicate again. And with that, the craft departed after the transmission ended. 
After it left, Charlie felt at peace with its experience. In February, he was awoken by his dog barking. He followed the dog outside behind his apartment building, and the dog looked as if they were being chased. He then received another message. You must tell the world we mean no harm. Your world needs help. We will help in the future before it's too late. You are not prepared to understand yet. We will return again soon. And then one of the most terrifying uh, experiences involved other eyewitnesses in Charlie's family. On Mother's Day, he had gone down to his father's farm to have lunch with his mother and the rest of the family. He had traveled down with his brother Kenny and his family, and on the return trip, Charlie noticed a strange light in the distance. He called everyone's attention to it, and they saw, and they all saw the strange light in the sky. It then moved closer to them, pulling practically parallel to where they were. It moved ahead of them, and everyone in the car was terrified. Kenny was forced to stop the car. The craft approached the passenger side, crossing the road to, the, to Charlie's side. Charlie said, quote, I must go. The beings are aboard. I must meet them. The kids pleaded with him not to go out there. The radio came to life on its own, and a message came through. Go. There will be another time, another place. It turned itself off then. They were shaken, but eventually made the return journey home. So that's pretty much Charlie's story as he tells it in UFO Contact at Pascagoula. I'm not really sure if he had any additional sightings, but we do know that that Calvin did. And you have um, Calvin's additional experiences. So why don't you go through those? Yeah, I do. So the first experience was he was fishing at Cat. Cat Island in Bay, Mississippi. Uh, he's and I think let's see, this was in let's say this was in 1993. This happened, uh, and and we'll get to his other ones later, his his prior ones. But this was in 1993. He set his anchor and he said he was fishing around 8 a.m. He had bought a new watch because uh, time had really become an issue in his life. He said like almost like he couldn't. It was escaping him. Like he couldn't. He just didn't know what time was. Almost. Uh, mm-hmm. He said he looked up. All of a sudden, it was dark. His watch said it was, uh, it was 11 o'clock, 2,300 hours, uh, 11 o'clock p.m. He had brought food and some water, and he reached, back, reached down, and he didn't have anything left in his bag. He had no lights on his boat, so the 30-minute trip back on the rough waters in the pitch-black darkness took one and a half hours. His wife left a note on his truck. He told her he don't think he could. He caught any fish, but he had a cooler full of fresh trout and flounder. Uh, his reporter friend who discovered this invited him uh, to meet Bill Hopkins at a UFO convention in Florida, where he also met Travel, uh, Travis Walton and others. And he was put under hypnosis to figure out what exactly happened. And he said that he saw a haze in the sky that, that day. And it was almost like a cloud. The bottom of the cloud opened up and he floated up, but his body was still in the boat asleep. The door closed, but he couldn't feel the craft moving. He saw a female with brownish uh, black eyes and he, and he right then came to grips with what happened in 1973 on his own. And I'm going to do some, uh, I guess, so he had he had this session in 93 where he had the regression hypnosis therapy and he gave the events of 73 but he actually combined the events of 73 with the ones that happened in 93 i guess because it's so fresh in his mind i'll sort of go right here and sort of try to separate it because he talks about uh 
so he saw the same female, and that was the same female that he saw. He had also saw that same female shape in '93, or or when he was nine. He had I, they, she was walking along a fence outside, and he he woke up to his brother saying, uh, "You know, Calvin, you know, she's whispering in your ear or something like along along those lines." And he, he said his ear was still wet from where she had been trying to whisper in his ear. Uh, and but he didn't see her that time. And then there was another time when he was camping. He saw her and she was blonde and she had sort of longer hair and she was in her twenties at this time. She had aged a little bit and he, and he was, uh, and, and anyway, he had saw her and at the, at the edge of the woods and she was trying to call him to the woods and she, her, his friend, her, her, his dad's friend, uh, Charlie Hickson was with him and he actually called him back. So that sort of stopped that encounter. And then, to sort of, I guess, make everything more complicated. I'll start reading his, because there's some more information about his first encounter, and then it goes into a second encounter. But it, mm-hmm. in the in the first encounter, he talked about he heard the buzzing sound uh, whenever the craft was there. And every time he heard that buzzing sound, he got cramps throughout his entire body from the mm-hmm. 73 encounter. There was a big orange shiny light that sat on top of the craft. He said that they were, that they were shaped like football players. We talked about that. Uh Everything was in the room was cold and electric charges were th- sent through his body. Okay, that, now I think this goes into this goes into the so he sort of merged the the account. So this is the ninety three encounter, which ends up being parsed out later. So in the ninety three encounter, he said he went into a room and it was almost like he was strapped in with black straps, but they weren't really there. It was a magnet, sort of like magnets, sort of pulling him down. He heard a loud noise and he started being pulled like a magnet. Saw the straps. He tried to break them but couldn't. He prayed to God that he was repeatedly died, like he just wanted to die. Uh, he heard a noise and the doors open. He feels peace now. He sees an ugly female alien with a mask on. He asked, who are you? And she stuck out her finger. She stuck her finger up his nose. She had a bad attitude, he said. He also said <laughs> that he had seen her before on November 7th. And also when he was, uh, when he was nine years old and when, when his 12-year-old brother had wet the bed, he got up and slept on the floor. We talked about that. Uh, she grabbed mm-hmm. him by the fi- side of the face and, and, he, and, he lo- and touched his chin. And, and his chin and his mouth opened. He heard a steady drip like a rain from a bucket dripping. And he looked and she had cut his hand and put something in his hand. And later on in the, in the 2019, uh, in the 2019 account, the regression, he talked about how she had put her, her fingers. She had really long fingers. She had put her finger down his throat and almost tried to choke him. And then right when he got to the verge of choking to death, she pulled it out and blood began pouring out of his nose and from his lips uh, so, so she saw where he'd cut him. She put something black, like a needle in his hand. She began cutting into his hand like a, and like a miracle, the blood stopped. She begins cleaning his feet, pulling and tugging on them. Uh, his shoe falls off and she unstraps him. She begins taking his clothes off. Uh, then there's a gap in the tape. Uh, he said, it feels like she is putting hot blood into his body and it stung all over. He thought it was, she changed all of his blood out. He had never felt anything that was hot in that hot in his entire life. She, le- she leaves. And all of a sudden when she leaves, he's able to move. He's not restrained at all. He talks about the table again. He sees the mirror. There's balls of electricity bouncing around the room. The mean girl comes back in the one that he had seen when, since he was a kid. And, and she grabs him and he grabs her by the neck. He don't, he's not constrained. And he begins beating her head against the mirror. He said, black stuff starts oozing out of her ears and eyes. Her ears are like human ears, but bigger. She had bluish green hair, loose curly hair, but she also he also said the lights were bluish green, so that could be uh, 
you know, could 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 influence that. So he so he and then he talks about he wanted to kill her. The other one came in, she made like a low noise in her throat that he can't he he, he likened it to an alligator mating call and she begins <laughs> yeah. scratching she begins scratching him across the eyeballs and eyebrows and he's bleeding profusely. Uh, he, she begins pulling thoughts out of his head, told him that his head was no longer, that they were no longer to be a threat. Another light shines on him and she tries to hide in the corner. Calvin now has memories and knowledge that he never knew current things, old things. It's like, he's watching a movie. He said that he saw a, 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 before that, when she was showing him like a nuclear Holocaust, she saw people's faces melting, but now it's like he's seeing current things like his life flashing where his eyes, like a movie. He feels a warm sensation. He has, he says that he is dead. He sees angels. He starts being pulled back down by her, though. He stands up, and he knows what, that she's afraid of him now. He sees them possessing bodies and the destruction. She backs away. She knows that she can't face him. They escort him out the door, and he knows now that the and, – and he's now in a little ball. And he's and, – and then he – so here he sort of puts it back into his – somehow he wove it back into his encounter with, with Hicks and – but that was a very uh, that was a different encounter that he sort of merged that came out later in uh, therapy. But yeah, it was a very yeah. strange, uh, just very weird encounter there, and a near death experience wrapped into that. That's everything somebody could want from like a paranormal experience, a UFO encounter, a fight, near death experience. What more could you want? Not only that, you got dialysis apparently at one point from uh, this <laughs> yeah. this alien woman. Um, uh, and uh, it's important to note that uh, Charlie is, or Calvin is not in the greatest of health. I mean, he's, he, he manages, but uh, he suffered, uh, I believe he suffered a stroke. And uh, I think it's kind of, he has trouble with like the left side of his body or something like that. He needs help, uh, you know, getting dressed every day and stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, he keeps on keeping on and uh, he's, he's helped to keep the Pascagoula abduction kind of prevalent and in people's you know um in the in the public eye here um you know it was a couple of weeks ago that there was an article i believe from the mirror that said uh that he was claiming that he predicted world war three and uh covid19 it kind of goes a little off the rails at times but he is still giving interviews today still keeping this story alive. And I think part of it has to do with um, his friendship with Charlie Hickson. Like uh, he definitely, um, it, it just seems like it's the mantle that he's kept up, um, you know, to this day. Um, but uh, so as a resident of Alabama, how, what kind of does this case have a reputation in the South? Does it have a reputation in Alabama or, you know, any of the areas around you? So this is like the, it's like the quintessential UFO case around here. Like it's, I remember hearing about it as a kid, but I wasn't, it wasn't even like the sense, like I knew exactly what happened. It was like, just you would hear people in passing mention, you know, you heard about them boys down in, you know, Mississippi, what happened in the Gulf? And they, I'm like, no, I, I don't. I don't know what happened. But they would just mention it in cash, in, in passing. And, and I think one reason why it's like the quintessential case is because it's a case where Calvin Parker, even to this day, is still very, he's devout in his faith as a Christian. And even in, in his interviews, he talks about, you know, being a Christian and really, not, you know, not understanding anything. And, and he just always comes off as genuine. Anytime you hear him, He's genuine. 
he talks and it's almost like he wants to know the truth as well. Every interview you hear him do, he'll end it by saying, thank you. I just want to get to the truth. That's all I want. I don't have any preconceived notions about what this is. I don't have a, a set. Uh, this is what happened. This is what happened. And these are who these people are. I, I, I know just as much as anybody else. And I want to find out. And there's a local, uh, I mean, it's a semi-national radio state radio program here with the two gentlemen who do it. It's more like a variety show, but it's, sort of like a, a comedy variety show and and they're, but they're relatively Christian. One of them does like a, a Christian Bible program every day. And they actually interviewed him. And even after they had him on, they afterwards, they sort of had a conversation like, what do we think? And then, and then they're like, I really don't know what he experienced, but I believe that Calvin really believes that he experienced that. And I believe that he experienced something and I don't know what it is, but he experienced what he said and we're not sure what it is. And it sort of opens that door, opens Pandora's box. And I think if, if you're like, especially for people who are more prone to be like, no, I don't want to, I don't believe in that stuff or anything like that. If you're willing to open the door, if you're willing to get the door open on one case, I mean, it, it's like you can't close it on another case and another case. Sure, there are some cases that are, you know, not true or made up or whatever. But once you open the door for one case, you can't just shut the door on every other case. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, I, and, you know, he continues to, uh, you know, fight that good fight, you know, trying to get, keep people open-minded, having closed-minded people open their minds. And, and I think that's, you know, kind of the perfect encapsulation of a guy who's been telling a story for a long time because he believes it's important and because he believes he needs to, in order to find the answers. And, you know, hopefully one day he does, because, uh, I mean, we're still talking about it. Like, it's almost 50 years and we're still talking about it. It's, it. it's an important, it's an important event, not only in ufology, but in kind of American history. So, you know, that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the Pascagoula abduction and all of its uh, inner workings and, and extrapolating parts. So Bradley, Rob, can thank, I- yeah, yeah, go ahead. Before we leave today and before you give your infamous sign off, yes. there's one thing that I that I just I couldn't. It's almost like if you're writing this D&D campaign that I couldn't. It, it would be too blatantly obvious. We've talked today about the crafts, hearing humming noises and, and all that. Uh, and, and I couldn't end it without talking about this. There was a case. I think it was in 18, the 1870s. So there's a case in the 1870s in Mississippi around Pascagoula. Mm. They said that a uh, a electric cloud would come through town, and it, I mean, Rob, I'm going to put a uh, I'm going to postulate, and you can agree or disagree. Electricity usually has a humming or a buzzing sound, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So these people experienced it in Pascagoula. Multiple people. Uh, one woman stuck her head out. She said that it shot a lot down. It was very hot. And also Calvin Parker's, I think his father-in-law had an experience where he had all of his fish get uh, a lot came down from something and boiled his fish alive in the pond. But anyway, so they in the 1870s, they see this electric cloud and they hear a humming noise as it's coming along. And that was just a weird experience, like a one-off. Well, if you go to the, if anybody ever has the opportunity to go to Pascagoula, you'll see the, the nice little marker near a gazebo, but about 50 feet from it you will see another sign. And during uh, Calvin Parker's 
when he's talking, he talked about what they talked about before. And I think that Charlie was really upset about his wife. And he also mentions that right before the UFO encounter, that Charlie was talking about a, an old legend about the Native Americans around there. And, and he didn't really pay attention to it. But if you go about, you know, probably less than 50 feet from where that marker is, just on the other side of where the boats are docked, there's the, the legend of the Singing River. Are you familiar with that, Rob? No, I am not. So the legend is, and I'll try to short, give this the shorthand, that there was a Pascagoula tribe and they had their own language and everything. And there was another tribe, uh, there was a Biloxi tribe that was sort of more, you know, uh, warmongering and stuff. They're the beautiful Enola. She was the daughter of the Biloxi tribe chief. And she wanted to get the affection of the Pascagoulas, who was one, who was one of the people of the tribe. And in the process, she, she, but she spurned her betrothed, Atonga, a chieftain of her own tribe. The Biloxi Indians were a fierce nature, not taking kindly to this affront. They proceeded to make war upon their neighbors. The outcome was never in doubt. They, of course, the Pascagoula tribe would lose. And either facing enslavement or death, they chose the latter. And marching hand in hand, this is where it gets good, singing to their death chant, the entire tribe, men, women, and children, marched into the Pascagoula River and drowned. To this day, the river mourns their passing. Fishermen in the bayous and the river heard the ghostly remainder of the songs. Most commonly, the sound occurs in late summer and early fall. It is described similar to the hum of a swarm of bees, gradually growing in intensity until it ceases as mysteriously as it begins. And that... Is how it all comes full circle, folks. That that's how you that's how you end a story about the Pascagoula abduction. That's beautiful. I love it. Uh, Bradley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man, and and talking about this case. Um, what do you got going on at Colshack's Loop? Uh, tell everybody about the podcast, where they can find it, where they can follow along with what you got going on. Uh, you can search at Colshack's Loop generally. Uh, we try to, we're not very frequently putting out episodes. I think we're <laughs> on it. I'm trying to edit podcasts now, but uh, I ought to do it. Rob, don't you turn all yours over and have somebody edit them? I ought to just pay somebody to edit it. Uh, at this point, yeah, I do right now. <laughs> so, uh, but but you can find us. We have a. We actually had Rob on. If you want to hear an interesting conversation with him, we had him on talking yep. about UFOs related to Colshack. And I don't know, man. You can find us at Colshack Sleep anywhere you find us. We're working on a website, ColshackSleep.com. I got to put it up one day. I'm paying for the website. I haven't put it up. So, <laughs> just a lot of things that are, uh, you know, just. And if you want to, just find us. Just call at Colshack Sleep. That's right. Go give them a listen. They are fantastic. Uh, I mean, if you have never watched Cole Shack, the Night Stalker, go go find it, folks. It's great. Uh, oh, yeah. You can find it online. You can watch it on NBC's website. So uh, you have no excuses. Go out there, give it a give it a watch, uh, and go listen to the podcast once you're done. Um, as for the Our Strange Skies podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. And if you'd like to help us out, please leave a rating and review on the platforms that allow it. And you know what? You could do that for Cole Shack's loop as well. Why not? Much obliged. Nobody's yeah. stopping you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nobody. 
nobody nobody is stopping you uh in fact we're encouraging you and it's always good to have encouraging friends uh, especially uh you know when they when you tell other friends about your favorite podcasts like these and um if you want to support us monetarily head on over to patreon.com slash your ufo guy where for three dollars a month you get early access to the regular episodes as well as bonus episodes uh special thanks to floats for the use of their song ufo as the theme for this podcast and special thanks to megan lagerberg for our our logo and the great desdemona for our t-shirt logos um you can check all of that out at the link tree in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on the banks of the Pascagoula River. In gray, we trust. Media.